Let me ask you to go to Romans chapter 9. Let's see if you agree with this statement, and if you do, I want you to say amen in response. God is 100% just. Scripture uses two terms to describe that characteristic of him, justice and righteousness. The two go hand in hand. You can't be just without being righteous. You can't be righteous without being just. And so we find that description of him, that God is just, and God can't be anything but 100% just because he's God. In other words, he can't be 80% one thing and 20% something else. He's 100% complete everything because he's perfect. So God is 100% just. Therefore, and this is how it applies to you, you are not random. Because God is just, you are intentionally designed. You are built by a God who doesn't do anything wrong. So God built you for a purpose. And this morning is all about your purpose. Why are you here? That's an incredibly common question that I hear on a regular basis as a pastor of a church. What's my purpose? Why am I here? You were placed on earth for this specific moment in time, and God has a purpose for you. Let me back that up with Scripture. We're told in Revelation chapter 4 that God created all things according to his will. It says it this way, you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created, Revelation 4.11. The book of Ephesians goes on to say that you were created for specific purposes. It says this, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That means today that you are not here by accident, and I don't mean just in this moment in time or if you happen to be watching online right now. There's a reason God puts you on this planet, and you're going to discover what your reason is today, and I'm not going to make you wait 20 minutes for it. You need to know now on the front end, why am I here? What is my reason? You have a primary purpose, and I do mean A, capital A singular primary purpose, and the primary purpose for your existence is to give God glory. You need to know that. That's why he puts you here. All things exist to give him praise. Now, specifically, when it comes to the issue of believers and our ancillary purposes, we have a primary purpose and ancillary purpose, and we have specifically as believers a primary purpose within the purpose. Look with me on the screen one more time at Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. If you're new to church this morning, I want you to understand discovering your purpose today begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you can't discover your purpose. So we'll come back to that in a moment. You need to know Jesus as your Savior in order to have a relationship with God and to really fulfill your purpose, but we'll come back to that. So because we're going to talk about something weighty as it applies to your life this morning, I really want to pray with you for God's wisdom, that God would allow you to hear through His Word what He wants you to hear this morning. Would you pray with me that way? Father, I pray for every single individual those who are watching online, those who will be streaming later this week, those who fill this auditorium right now, 
Those who were here in the Saturday night service and in the 815 and those who will be here in the 1130, God, every one of us, that you would knit our hearts together with your Holy Spirit, that we would understand how your word has a claim upon us. We're not here by accident, but you built us. And because you're a God of purpose and you're just and you don't do anything by accident, God, show us what that is. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God is 100% just, therefore he cannot do anything but act justly. That means all of his actions have a purpose, including placing you here for this moment. So if you understand the primary purpose for your existence is to give God glory, and you understand that God is 100% just, you can approach really hard statements in the Bible, like Romans chapter 9, verse 13, and be willing to admit, I'm a bit confused by it, but I understand that God is just, and I'll have a biblical view of this, and let me show you what I mean by that in Romans 9, 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Some people, when they read that, would say immediately, like especially somebody who's new to the Bible, how is that fair? How is that a just God? That doesn't match the understanding I have of God. It looks like he, he's got a grudge against somebody. I thought you said everybody has a purpose. Well, don't just stay there with verse 13. Go to verse 14. Paul knows what you're thinking. He says in verse 14, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Could two verses in the Bible stand more contrasted to each other? I hate this, but God has no injustice in him. There's a reason God caused Paul to write this down 2,000 years ago. There's things he wants you to know. There's things I need to know. There's things you need to know. Because Paul has people in his life, in his social circle, just like you do. He knows people who have no relationship with God, who have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're far from God. And they may think of God as being unjust, and Paul's reasoning through with them God's sovereign actions. Because it looks like, Paul, you're saying God's just, but it looks like some people have no chance. How do I understand this? Well, before you get stuck on verse 13, I'm going to ask you to back up to two weeks ago. We had an ice storm. And that ice storm allowed us not to work through verses 10, 11, and 12 in the morning services, but Saturday night we worked through it. And I yet had to bring all these members of this church together on the same thought. So God has shown me a way to hem this together. And I need to back up with you to a couple of verses we looked at two weeks ago in verse 10, where Paul is using an example of some people to help us understand these just actions of God. Look with me on the screen at verse 10. Here's his first example. There was Rebekah. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, and your Bible might have the word election there, according to God's election, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And here comes that really, really hard verse, verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There's a word that's not going to occur in your notes this morning, a Greek word that you're just going to see on the screen, and it's this word, alonje. 
And it actually is talking about divine selection. God's prerogative to choose. So the election of God. And we're told that's applied to this choice that God chose one over the other. And Paul says there's an example with Rebecca. So let's just think about Rebecca for a minute. Although she's this young woman, probably we're going to say in her mid-20s, she's living in northern Iraq, somewhere north of Baghdad, nowhere near Israel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. In that period of time, a three-month foot journey. Yet God says, I choose her, and I want her to come to Israel. So they send some servants out to find this one who would become the wife of Isaac. And Rebekah is brought from northern Iraq all the way to Israel for a specific ancillary purpose that she would bear twins, but for a greater purpose to bring glory to God. So we need to step back in time to really understand what's going on here. And in order to do that, I have to take you back to Genesis chapter 25 so you actually see the story. Let's see what's going on with Rebekah. Verse 21, Genesis 25, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. In other words, the babies are fighting in her womb. I know there's a lot of moms here in the room, and you know something guys don't know. We don't know what it is to be kicked in the ribs from the inside, but you do. You know what it is to have a child do damage to you and make you... My wife used to say, I feel like somebody's punching me from the inside out. Well, in her case, she's got twins doing this, and apparently they're doing it so much, it's as though they're wrestling in her womb. They're actually fighting. And she's saying, this is really painful, and if I'm being blessed from God, why is it this way? This doesn't feel like a blessing. So she inquires of the Lord, verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. That sounds painful, doesn't it? Two nations are within you. And they're already at war. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. Now let's just mentally go back to Romans again. Romans chapter 9, Paul's making this argument. And he says, instead of God giving the twins equal position, we're told that God chooses Jacob over Esau. So he says this in chapter 9, verse 11. The twins had not done anything good or bad. In order that God's purpose, according to his choice, his election, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul's saying, put your thinking caps on. Reason this through with me. He's saying it doesn't have anything to do with personal accomplishment. These are babies that haven't even been born yet. It hadn't done anything yet. It has to do everything with God, and God has a purpose and he has a purpose in everything he does because he's a just God. So God did not choose both for the physical line. Ultimately, one line would produce Jesus. God couldn't choose both to do that. He had to choose one, so sovereignly he elects Jacob. Chosen that God's purposes would stand. And such an important statement, not because of human works. And this really relates to your salvation relationship. You don't have relationship with God because you're so great or because of the things that you've done or did not do, but rather because it's God's prerogative. Such an important verse to stay with, but we can't. We need to dive into this story. 
So let's get into the story because Jacob and Esau are twins who are born at the same time, but technically Esau is born first. He's the first to come out of the womb, but Jacob, he actually has a hold of his brother's heel as he leaves the womb. He's holding on to his brother's foot. So they come out together, but Esau is born first, so technically he's the firstborn, but we're told that God is disregarding that. And he tells the mother, the older is actually going to serve the younger. However, both have a purpose. Both have great opportunity. Because God said, there's two nations there, and I'm going to make them great. They have opportunity to respond to what I'm going to do. But as you read the historical context, you find both of them didn't do so well. One seizes God's opportunities. One completely misses God's opportunities for his life. How in the world does that happen? Well, let's dive back into the story in Genesis 25. Verse 24 says this, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth, red all over, like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand, holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was, pe was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I ask you, could two guys be more different than this? You got Wall Street and you got Redneck in the same family. All right? These two are brought up in the same household, but what we read about Jacob in Scripture is he's a guy who likes to sit quietly. He likes to, according to Scripture, dwell in the tent. So I'm picturing him watching the cooking channel. All right? and, and he's got his magazines out, and he likes to read, just leave me alone. I'm going to put on some soft music. I just want to chill. All right? That's Jacob. But Esau is completely opposite. First of all, we're told he's got bright red hair, and he's red-skinned. And he's densely hairy like the carpet of a camel's back, according to Scripture. There's a creepy picture, right? So this guy's covered with fur, and he is a man of the wild. So I'm picturing this guy wearing camo and driving a 4 by 4 And he likes to be out hunting because he likes to be in the woods. So he's a complete opposite of his brother. His brother likes to cook, and he likes to hunt. So we've got these guys who are opposites in their appearance and in their habits and in their character, and in their belief, even though they've got the same mom and the same dad, and they're twins, they're complete opposites. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff. You're going to find out in a moment that's lentil soup. For I am famished, therefore his name was called Edom. And Edom in the, in the Hebrew language simply means red. Uh, very likely he's diving into a bowl of Egyptian beans. Very prominent in that area. Most of the people who were twent, tent dwellers in that area, they would harvest these Egyptian beans because they were highly packed in protein. Whatever it was, we know that the hunter has been out in the field and he's an outdoorsman. And he comes through the door, and he's overwhelmed with the smell of the food. I don't know how many of you had the experience that I did as a child, but going to church on Sundays was a great memory for me because coming home from church was walking into my parents' house and smelling a roast overcoming the entire environment. And it was like a, ah, I am starving. And I couldn't wait for food to be put on the table. And I think that's what's going on with Esau here. 
So first, I want that red stuff. I'm famished, therefore his name is called Edom. So watch Jacob's response, verse 31. What a loving brother. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. What? Oh, where is that coming from? Verse 32, Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? If you have the King James Version of the Bible, it says, what profit is there to me? I don't see any profit in keeping this thing. My life is daily at risk of death. I'm out in the wild encountering wild animals every day. I have no use for this thing. I'm probably going to die before I could ever use it. What use is the birthright? Now, this is an exaggeration of profound, profound standards. I remember using that same kind of reasoning with my parents as a teenager. I'm starving. Isn't there anything in this house to eat? Do you remember saying that to your parents as a teenager? That's his attitude here. Now, these are both young adult men, obviously, but he's about to barter something that he shouldn't be bartering. He's about to barter his destiny. I don't know what you know about the birthright entitled to the firstborn son, but with the birthright in this culture for the firstborn came a lot of benefits. First of all, they received a double portion of the inheritance financially. So whatever your siblings would get, you'd get twice as much. And as the firstborn, you were able to determine all of the family investments once daddy died. You also had the responsibility of determining the direction of family worship. And putting all those things together, you were the one who decided the destiny of the family. Now, this is a pretty important destiny for this family because granddaddy was Abraham. Look at me on the screen of what we know about Abraham, Genesis 13, 2. Now, Abraham was very rich, not only in livestock, but he had a lot of silver, and he had a lot of gold. And when he died, his wealth was passed on to Isaac. And now Isaac is old, and his wealth is about to be passed on to the firstborn. I will tell you, church, I have had lentil soup before, and it's tasty, but it's not going to change my destiny. Right? It's, there's no food on earth that could explain this. What is going on here? Why exchange your future for something so ridiculously simple? So let's just call this what it is because it's going on in your world every day. In your social circle, you watch this happening all the time. What you're watching is somebody who's trading their purpose for pleasure. They're totally missing out on the direction that God has called them here for, the distinct reason for why they're on this planet. So they're trading what could be for immediate gratification. So we just have to call it what it is. You're watching somebody trade purpose for pleasure. And all through history, our ancestors have done this. Eve traded perfection for personal gratification. We have also seen Judas trade God for money. And now you see Esau trades his future for food. Many are traveling this exact same path today, and they're exchanging what could be. Why? How do you explain this? I can sum it up in one sentence. He is taking lightly the things of God. And you have to stop right now and ask yourself, is this true of me? Am, am I one who might be taking lightly the things of God? 
Because Scripture warns us, even in the New Testament, you find the writer of Hebrews, one of the last books in the New Testament, looking back over hundreds of years saying, don't be like Esau. Don't let anyone miss out on the grace of God. Don't be like that guy. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 12, 16. Lest there be a fornicator or a profane person as Esau among you. Now that word fornicator, we get that. We use the word, the root word is in the Greek language. We use it all the time in our language today. It's, it's the word pornos. It's the root of the word pornography. And we understand that. It, it's like something that's wicked that's been cheaply sold off. That's where it comes from, this word pornos. That, that's a person who's a fornicator. But this word profane, that, one, that one's in your notes because it goes a step further. This particular word is talking about somebody who, who's dabbling in things they shouldn't be, but they then cross over the threshold. In other words, the definition that you see means they've crossed the doorway and they begin trampling on things they should not be having anything to do with. So when the Bible uses this, it's talking about somebody who's trampling on spiritual matters. So that's the way Esau is being described here. Now, I think it's safe to say I think it's safe to assume that Esau has already been looking for a reason to dump this responsibility. So you don't come to a decision like this lightly. I think he understands what's waiting for him. But that deal of having to manage the family's worship destiny, this is a guy who'd rather be doing what he wants to do. He loves the outdoors. Don't saddle me down with this business responsibility. And certainly don't saddle me with this worship direction. And Jacob is an opportunist. And that's a nice way of saying the guy's a cheater. And we don't need to get into the profile of Jacob this morning, but he seizes on the opportunity. And he takes advantage of his brother's weakness. Verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. You're going to Shabbat me. You want that? Then I want a Shabbat from you. And a Shabbat is to swear an oath, but it's to swear an oath seven times. And this is so someone would not take an oath lightly and they would realize what they're about to do. So in Jewish tradition, I promise to sell you my birthright. 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 That's six. Would you not think by that moment in time you'd be recalculating, what in the world am I doing? Could he not have gone to his dad, Isaac, who loved him greatly, and said, Dad, does this sound like a good deal to you? Should I be trading out my future for a bowl of soup? What is going on? But he enters into the seventh Shabbat, I swear to sell you my birthright. Scripture says that's exactly what he did. He swore and he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. Dad is really, really wealthy. There has to be a lot of food in this house. He can easily get what he wants. But he wants what he wants when he wants it. And what God has given him for a purpose is treated so trivially, so lightly, 
He's profanely trampling on spiritual matters. So we find in verse 34, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Remember Hebrews 12 talking about something that was profane, trampling under the things of God? The exact opposite is supposed to be true of you and I. If we possess the Holy Spirit because we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're told there's things that are supposed to leak out of us, the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, one of those specifically, is the spirit of self-control. And I don't see any self-control going on in this particular story. You remember the fruits of the Spirit from the book of Galatians, right? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, and what, church? And self-control. And I'm asking you to consider, is, is that true of you this morning? Because if you're ruled by the Spirit, you're going to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. But if you're ruled by your appetite, you're going to surrender to desire and not make wise decisions. So a person who's ruled by their appetite is going to desire things and have an insatiable desire for money and for food and possessions and power and pleasure. And those are the things that Satan is going to try and pounce on. He tried to do it with Jesus. If you look at the temptations that were brought to Jesus, money, power, pleasure, exact same thing. And he was trying to work on the chinks in the armor. Are there any cracks in your profile, Jesus? There were none. But for us, he studies us. And that's why Scripture says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He studies you. He watches you to see where your weakness is. What are you going to give into? And I will tell you that immediate gratification, this need for immediate desire fulfillment, it is the great deceit of this generation. And it's leading to bondage. And, and I, I'm guessing if you're under 30, you know somebody, guys especially, you probably know somebody in your social circle, and maybe in their mid-30s or younger, who are totally enslaved to one thing that has caught them Perhaps they don't even realize it, but all forms of electronic media entertainment, everything from pornography to video gaming, and robbing them of their destiny. You have to be on the high alert for this because Scripture says there are things that people will use to trade out their destiny. So I'm asking you this morning, this applies to every single person, both online and in this auditorium, is there a bowl of soup in your life right now? Is there a bowl of soup that's trying to steal your destiny? Because Satan will rob you, and he will prowl. He tried to send Jesus in another direction. Don't think he won't try and do it with you. Gratefully, there's grace and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can get us back on track. But later, let's get off that for a second and get back on track now with this story. Later, in Esau's life, what you find is there's a pattern of behavior here that stayed with him throughout the course of his life. And it stayed with his descendants, generations after him. What was known as the nation of Edom, the Edomites, became a rebellious people and a thorn in the flesh to the people of Israel. And they all stemmed from this decision maker, Esau. Ultimately, God had to wipe them out as a nation because they were so rebellious to him. In a detail you may not be aware of, but King Herod, who tried to kill baby Jesus, was an Edomite. 
part of the line of Esau, standing against the purposes of God. These are the things that Satan focuses on. So to circle back around and bring closure to this application to your life, let me take you back to Romans chapter 9 and verse 13. Look with me one more time at this. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And Paul's statement is a quote of Malachi chapter 1. Here's why he made this statement in Malachi chapter 1. You see chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 on the screen. Yet I have loved Jacob. Now here's what's going on in chapter 1. Israel as a people are saying, how have you loved us? And God lists for them all the things that he's done for them. But he says, when it comes to Esau, that line from Esau, I've hated it. Because they stand opposed. Now, granted, it seems shocking, completely contrary to anybody who thinks they understand God when they read that statement. They think, I heard God was love. It doesn't look like a just God. How can he hate somebody? I will tell you as I understand this passage, it doesn't look like it's applied to the two individuals, Jacob and Esau, but rather to the line of the genealogy, the descent of them. Those who favored and chased after the things of God and those who rebelled and pushed back. And God said, I hate that. Especially when you see he talks about the mountains being made a desolation, the place that they dwelt in, their offspring. This was written 1,000 years after Esau lived when Micah puts this down. So the best interpretation is the Lord's anger is against Esau's line because God said, I will make them both great nations. What are they going to do with it? So that's maybe the minor picture, but here's the big picture to end this. Here's, I think, the big picture that Paul really wants us to get down. This just God has a specific purpose for everything he does. He's sovereign. He has a purpose for the one thing that he chooses, and he chooses to bring glory to himself. And so he can't choose wrongly. Everything he does because he's just is done perfectly without any error. And you said amen at the beginning of this teaching. So I assume that you agree with us still, that God is 100% just. And therefore, he can't make any error. And he can't make any error here. And so by his election, his purposes will be accomplished. So I'm going to acknowledge to you what I think you would acknowledge freely. My, my, my finite mind cannot comprehend this. How does this work together with my belief? Well, my lack of understanding doesn't mean I dispose of it and just throw it away. Try as I might, I cannot deny the election of God. So very clearly, I run into individuals who will say to me, you don't believe in that predestination thing, do you? You don't believe in God's election. What do you mean you don't believe in it? It's in the Bible. The Word is in the Bible. You have to accept it. Try as I might to dismiss it. I can't. So clearly, His choosing works hand in hand with my believing. And this is a deep thought for you to chew on for the next seven days. I don't typically end a teaching with a deep thought. But you need to chew on this for what we're coming back to next week. His choosing works hand in hand with my believing. So I acknowledge with full belief, but far from all full understanding, something like 1 Corinthians 1.9. It says this, God is faithful, 
through whom we were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We were called. So he called, but I had to believe. He called you, but you had to respond. And your belief brought you justification. So in response to your belief, God justified you. You have been justified, so justification is conditional. Here's the deep thought. Justification is conditional. It's conditional on your believing. But God's election is not conditional because He's the God of all things. He creates all things. In order to be justified, I must believe that Jesus is Savior, but in order to believe, we must be called to believe because it's not by works, lest any one of us would boast. So his choosing works hand in hand with my believing. So let me sum this up for you. If I understand that God can only act justly, and he set every single one of us apart for his purposes, then your salvation and my salvation is about way more than just getting our ticket punched and waiting for the next train to heaven. It's about bringing glory to the one who saved us in every single way, with every single breath, with every single opportunity, in everything that I choose to do. So the primary purpose for my being here, for my salvation, is to give God glory in everything that I do. How do I actually do that? And here's where you go into self-analysis. This is for you to gauge yourself. How are you known in your social circle? How are you known in your neighborhood? How are you known in your workplace? How do people know you? Because you exist to praise his infinite beauty, primarily seen in his amazing grace, the grace that he extended to you. So he gave you a brilliant mind. Even if you don't think you're brilliant, you are. You're smarter than all the animals on this planet. He gave you a brilliant mind, not primarily for business success, not primarily for educational success, not primarily for social success. Those are all ancillary. He gave you a brilliant mind to tell of Him. And if you're a Christ follower, you are not just an individual who happens to make a living at blank. You can fill in the blank. You're not just a student who might be just living by chance in this moment in time. God built you for a purpose. So in whatever environment you are in, you are a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you walk forward this week knowing that. So I leave you with this thought to chew on that. He gave you a mind. He gave you a body. He gave you a capacity to use this moment for his glory. How are you going to do that? That's up to you. How will you do that this week? Here's how I'm going to pray for you. I'm praying for myself the same way. That we would put God on greater display this week. What will that look like in your workplace? What will that look like in your neighborhood? What will that look like in your social circle? To put God on greater display. 
I'm going to ask that he would impress that upon your heart. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for that reason, for myself and for every single person here. We are all sinners saved by grace. And we want to honor you. And yet we find ourselves enticed by these bowls of soup that keep trying to pull us off. Father, I pray for every person in this auditorium that we would be so sold out to you this week that we would be looking for ways to praise you. It might even be in the simplest way. I don't know what it is, Father, but I pray that you would, and you can do this. I know you can do this. Press on our heart. As many people as are represented here, you're going to do that in that many different ways, God. Show us ways to bring praise and glory to who you are because you're worthy of it. You're worth it, Father. And we are not ashamed to proclaim that. We're certainly not afraid to do it in church. Help us not to be afraid to do it in our workplace. To the one who redeemed us, be all praise and honor and glory. And God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.